Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I'd like to welcome everybody to today's presentation on crisis intervention in substance abuse treatment. This is based in part, again, on SAMHSA tip 50, addressing suicidal thoughts and behaviors in substance abuse treatment. I am your host, Dr. Donnelly Snipes. We're going to explore real quickly um, crisis counseling, articulate helpful tips for dealing with client suicidality or suicidal ideation, identify positive attitudes and behaviors towards clients that are dealing with suicidal thoughts, and that comes specifically straight from tip 50. We'll identify warning signs for suicidality using the acronym is path warm will identify some statistics related to suicide in order to better identify potentially suicidal clients now i'm not going to ask you specific you know numbers you know percentages or anything on the quiz so you know don't worry about that we're looking at meta concepts for the quiz become familiar with the gate procedures for substance abuse and mental health counselors and explore suicidality issues at different levels of care outpatient iop residential you get my point statistics related to suicide this is just general information your suicide danger zone are between the ages of sadly enough 10 and 24 years of age this is children are going through adolescence at this point we know that the um a prefrontal cortex doesn't finish developing until about 24 years of age so there is more emotional dysregulation and more impulsivity in people who are in this age group and then again it peaks after age 70. we can imagine the reasons why someone may become hopeless helpless suicidal after age 70 as well uh, but it is important to recognize that both of those blocks of time, if you will, people are at higher risk of suicide. That doesn't mean that people who are in between aren't at risk of suicide. But uh, we do know that we need to be more, maybe more attuned in some ways to this age group. More than 90% of people who die from suicide satisfy the criteria for one or more psychiatric disorders. Now, if it's been a while since you've been through uh, DSM, maybe you're in private practice and you don't have to do diagnoses because you're private pay or whatever. Um, it is important to recognize the difference, for example, between major depressive disorder or generalized anxiety and adjustment disorder. Remember that adjustment disorder revolves around a particular situational thing. Um, COVID, for example would be something that could trigger adjustment disorder in people. It's not something that's ongoing. It was clearly mood issues were clearly precipitated by something. Anxiety disorders are associated with a six to tenfold increase in suicide risk. Alcohol abuse or dependence is present in 25 to 50% of those people who died by suicide. Now, that doesn't include all the people who attempt suicide, just the people who are successful 25 to 50 percent um, had some 
alcohol use disorder. When trauma and substance use are combined, or substance abuse are combined, the risk for suicide jumps to 42%. That is a staggering number. When we're working with clients, now that we're more in tune to adverse childhood experiences and trauma-informed care, and we're a little bit more aware, we're doing a bit better job destigmatizing uh, addiction, so more people are talking about it, um, it's important to recognize that when you have clients who have uh, substance use disorders and trauma, they are at a significantly higher risk of suicide or suicidal ideation, and we need to pay attention to that. Impending interpersonal losses and comorbid psychiatric disorders, and that can include everything from mood disorders to schizophrenia, have been specifically linked to suicide in people with alcoholism. Now, alcohol keeps coming up. Why is that? And I think this is um, rudimentary for, for most of you, uh, but just for any of you who haven't had a background in substance disorders, alcohol is a disinhibitor. Alcohol tends to um, make people or, or allow people, it doesn't make them, it allows them to do things that they may not normally do when they're under the influence. Let's talk about crisis because crisis always precipitates suicidal ideation. People don't just go along having a great day, be bopping, and then all of a sudden become suicidal. There is some sort of a crisis that precipitates that suicidal ideation. In most cases, suicide or suicidal ideation is a thought process or a hope to end unbearable un, un, uh, pain. We want to recognize the function. The person may feel helpless. They may feel hopeless. They may feel like they are a burden on other people and they want to leave that burden. They're looking at it as a solution. Now, we recognize that it is a uh, not, not the best solution, but we want to recognize what is the function of these thoughts? In what ways is, you know, suicide potentially, you know, a beneficial uh, behavior in this person's eyes? Once we understand what they're trying to accomplish through that, whether they're trying to eliminate their own pain or they're trying to not be a burden, then we can help them identify alternative ways to address that. But suicide and crisis is generally complicated. There's often not one simple cause. Um, you know, people have biopsychosocial issues. They may have a precipitating event. Maybe they go into a foreclosure in their, on their house, and that is the precipitating event. But when we want to look at what's going on, we need to recognize that it's not just about the foreclosure on the house. It's about a bunch of other stuff. You know, they may have lost their social support system. They, their self-esteem, you know, probably took a hit when they were unable to keep a house, um, a roof over their head. We want to ask them and talk to them about what's going on and not try to pin it just on one thing. Beliefs may be operating when an emotional reaction seems out of proportion to what you're thinking in the heat of the moment. And it's important to look at what are those, you know, go back to your cognitive behavioral, what are those um, automatic beliefs? that the person is having that may be supporting their feeling of hopelessness and helpless. Look for that 
all or none thinking and those cognitive distortions. And precipitating events may impact many different areas of life. If somebody uh, gets divorced, you know, they get served divorce papers and it precipitates a crisis, well, now, you know, they may have to move out of their house. They have obviously lost someone that they had at one point a bond with they may have some abandonment fears going on you know i don't know it may alter their relationship with their children there there are a lot of things it's going to alter their finances there are a lot of things that are going on for that person generally in crises and we don't want to promise people panaceas or quick fixes because there generally aren't any we want to make sure that people recognize that any relief they have you know is going to be gradual there may be some instances where they have temporary immediate relief but it's not long lasting let's think about non-suicidal self-injury now this is obviously self-injury in which somebody doesn't want to die cutting is you know the stereotypical example that we use many people who cut actually aren't suicidal they don't want to die they are trying to um, get out of that mental anguish that they're experiencing or that feeling of emotional discontrol they're trying to get control again by suicide by non-suicidal self-injury they can control the pain they can control this it's external as opposed to emotions and thoughts that are often internal so we want to look at as i've regularly said what is the function of the thoughts and the behavior what is the hoped for goal of those things it's important we want to make sure that people don't act without thinking clearly through the um, consequences because we don't want them to make the problem worse something may seem like a good idea at the time but let's think about you know tomorrow morning when you wake up is this going to seem like such a good idea with a crisis though there is a necessity of choice when people are in crisis they can't go on feeling that way feeling that out of control feeling that much emotional pain for very long so it necessitates choice and it's important to recognize that choosing not to act is still a choice you know but they're choosing they're either going to change the situation change the way they feel this about the situation or continue to sit in that anguish and that is a choice sometimes sitting in that anguish is a choice they make because the other two options just so overwhelming and that's where we can step in and help now remember in early um substance abuse recovery detox you know in the early weeks of recovery the brain is recovering the neurotransmitters are you know trying to get rebalanced they're not uh, receiving the influx of the chemicals anymore people's moods tend to be a lot more um, all over the place a lot more dysregulated they tend to feel feelings a lot more intensely we've talked before about flat to furious during this period a lot of clients will feel just kind of blah most of the time but when they get triggered it is an extreme emotion extreme depression extreme anxiety extreme anger because their hpa axis is responding with an exaggerated response remember that both substance use as well as withdrawal are 
perceived by the HPA axis, the threat response system, as threats. So their HPA axis has just been in overdrive the entire time they've been in their addiction for the most part. So, you know, now it's time for that HPA axis to start rebalancing and, um, you know, recalibrating itself. But that doesn't happen overnight. And it's important that we recognize that in these early weeks and months of recovery, uh, when people are not, especially if they're not able to access their substance of choice, if they're not able to access their addictive behaviors, which often numbed the pain, they may feel those feelings so intensely. And it could trigger um, more suicidal ideation when they are in early recovery because they're starting to feel feelings. They're starting to, you know, really cognitively grasp everything that's happened, everything that they've got to, to fix in order to move along to a good recovery program. Types of crisis and risk factors. Well, we'll use that PACERS model like I like to do. Uh, physical crises. Illnesses can be physical crises. If somebody gets diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, they get diagnosed with cancer, if they've got chronic pain, any of those things can be a crisis for somebody. When somebody is in chronic pain, you know, even let's chronic migraines or uh, rheumatoid arthritis, you know, the list goes on. That can be extremely frustrating for them if it prevents them from doing those things that they perceive as making their life meaningful. We need to recognize that any change in a person's physical abilities and physical health could precipitate suicidal ideation. It's, any change is probably going to precipitate a crisis, but the intensity and duration of that crisis will vary based upon the impact that that illness has on the person's lifestyle and their self-esteem. Addiction is another uh, risk factor for suicidal ideation because in addiction, people often... Um, develop problems in their relationships, in their finances, in their employment, in their health. So even during an addiction, before somebody tries to get clean and sober, uh, they may experience crisis. And a lot of times I, I've worked with people who are in the throes of their addiction and they have suicidal ideation. And one of the things that they're if you want to use the term using their addiction for, is to numb that pain. Again, they don't want to die, but they don't know how to make the pain stop. And developmental issues, that could have gone in one of a couple of different categories, but we'll put it physical. As we age, we go through different life stages. And as people get older, um, there are certain things like empty nest syndrome and retirement and the death of a spouse that can trigger uh, crises in people. We do want to recognize that. Now, if you think about empty nest syndrome and and um, retirement, midlife, those we typically recognize as crisis points. But if you think back to those high risk ages, you know they're not in that high risk window so much. It's but we don't want to miss those. We don't want to overlook them. Um, we do need to recognize that people in midlife do have crises and people in midlife do have suicidal ideation. Affectively, when people have anxiety, depression, bipolar disorder, uh, these can be risk factors. When they have a uh, 
a flare-up of their symptoms. You know, if they have uh, major depressive disorder and they've been stable for a while and then now they're having a flare-up for some reason. Maybe it was triggered by grief. Who knows? That can trigger suicidal ideation. They can feel hopeless and helpless and just, you know, okay, I can't go through this again. I've been through it before and I can't go through it again. On that note, people with bipolar disorder, one of the greatest risk periods for suicide in people who have bipolar disorder is when they are coming out of a depressive episode. Why is that? Because when they're in their depressive episode, they often don't have the energy to think through a plan and make it happen. When they're coming out, they're starting to get energy back. But they also remember how bad it was when they were depressed, and especially if they're going right into a manic episode. But even if they're not, um, many people, when they start having enough energy to actually think through and carry out a plan, that's when they're at the greatest risk. Doesn't mean they're not at risk when they are in a depressive episode or in a manic episode or, you know, sometimes when they are in a asymptomatic period, but another crisis happens. My point being, we don't want to rest on our laurels, but we do want to recognize potential triggers for crises. Cognitive crises, Alzheimer's. A lot of people who have Alzheimer's or dementia, um, before they start losing complete touch with what's going on, before it gets super bad, um, recognize that they are losing their memories. They're losing their sense of self. They start to feel like a burden. They start to feel very depressed and very hopeless. And this includes, um, I guess I should go back up, put this in physical, I don't know. Uh, this does include things like alcoholic dementia or Wernicke-Korsakoff syndrome. I worked with a client and it was just painful to watch this man as he came to grips with the fact that some of his cognitive abilities probably weren't coming back. He had been um, drinking for many, many years and uh, developed Korsakoff syndrome and, you know, whatever. But he was aware that the things he was doing, he was not able to live independently anymore. And that was devastating to him. Um, and th there was a period after, you know, this was all realized that he did become quite depressed and he had some suicidal ideation. We need to pay attention to that. And people who have psychotic symptoms, whether it's because of schizophrenia or a side effect of Parkinson's disease or a side effect of depression, if they have uh, command hallucinations or delusions that are, or hallucinations or delusions that are scary to them, they may harm themselves as a way of trying to get away from it, or maybe, maybe they even think they're trying to protect themselves or protect loved ones by not being around anymore, because theoretically that makes whatever it is they're afraid of go away. We do want to look for cognitive issues that could trigger a thought process that would say, the world is better off without me or, you know, suicide is a better option. So we do want to look for those things. Again, identify what's the underlying issue that is prompting this ideation. What do they think suicide will resolve and how else can we resolve this? Environmental and financial factors. Job loss 
can be devastating to people. Uh, we actually, there was one research study that I read that indicated that women who lose their jobs uh, and have difficulty finding work often tend to have more suicidal ideation than, than men, which I thought was kind of interesting in our culture. But homelessness, and this is typically uh, someone who recently has become homeless. Cabin fever, and this is an interesting one, but people who are on lockdown can become very anxious, very agitated, start feeling very hopeless and helpless. A lot of times when we are on lockdown, uh, we have too much time to sit around and think and think about the bad things and get depressed. Too much time to watch mainstream media and get freaked out. Uh, so people can feel like, you know, the world out there is just not one I want to live any, in anymore because they're focusing on all the bad stuff. And we know that when we get into a negative emotive state, we tend to focus on and be more attuned to things in the environment that support that emotion. If we're angry, if we're anxious, if we're depressed, we notice things in the environment that support that. Generally, when you're depressed, you probably aren't noticing the cardinals or the bunny rabbits or the whatever. You're noticing the weeds and the dark clouds and the airplane that's making too much noise. Or maybe that's just me. Um, and changes in levels of care. This is something else to be aware of. And it goes with my um, <clears throat> uh, soapbox of discharge from substance abuse treatment. It really frustrates me when people go from 24-hour, seven-day-a-week residential care, and then they get discharged to aftercare. In, and if we're lucky, they're in a sober living house, you know. They go from 24-hour, seven-day-a-week supervision to virtually no supervision. And, you know, hopefully 90 meetings in 90 days, but that's still only one or two hours a day. They have the other 23, 24 hours a day that they've got to cope by themselves. Think about when you went to college or when some of your friends went to college, if you didn't kind of go wild. A lot of us go wild when we go to college. We go from living under mom and dad's roof and having a curfew and having somebody else doing the shopping and making sure we're eating well and doing our homework and all that stuff to college where there's nobody to tell us to go to class. There's nobody to tell us what time to go to bed, you know. And if you think back to that time, you know, it's kind of... A, par a similar parallel where you go from superstructure and a theoretically super safe environment to one in which you're kind of out there. And this is so uh, dangerous, especially to people in, uh, in early recovery. So changes in levels of care can trigger suicidal ideation. People can very easily and very quickly start feeling overwhelmed and, you know, wanting to use again and then not, not wanting to use but wanting to use and then starting to feel suicidal because they're like, I can't stay clean, so what's the point? And they can get into this very negative, chaotic mental state. It is so important to try to encourage people to step down from residential to partial hospitalization to IOP, then finally to outpatient over the course of several months. We know from the literature that 28 days 
is really a glorified detox. If you look at the literature on SAMHSA's website, we know that for most drugs, I won't say all, but for most drugs, it takes at least 90 days of intensive treatment to really help the person get you know, squared away. It takes this long for the body to start to recover from the addiction and, you know, rebalance the neurotransmitters and get the body healthy again, restabilize those circadian rhythms. Uh, It doesn't mean you have to do 90 days in residential, but during that first 90 days, uh, people really benefit from some level of intensive treatment. Relational uh, breakups, death, Abuse history and isolation also contribute to um, risk of suicidal ideation. When you've got too much time on your hands, when you're isolated, uh, we know that social support systems are one of our greatest buffers against stress. When you don't have that, you know, it can contribute to uh, significant feelings of um, abandonment and of helplessness. Abuse history, we know that trauma significantly raises people's risk factors for depression and ideation. And then just loss of someone else, either through breakup or through death, can leave people really struggling with abandonment issues and potentially loss of a desire to live if they can't be with that person. And spiritually, I needed to throw this in, sometimes people just experience a loss of meaning. They don't see a point in going on anymore. And, you know, this can occur at any age. It typically occurs at older ages. Uh, But we do want to not forget about a a change in somebody's spiritual standing, if you will. I'm not sure what word I'm looking for here in the world. When they have a sense of a loss of meaning, a loss of connectedness, that awe and wonder at what's going on in the world, when all that's gone, uh, they are at greater risk for suicide. People with substance use disorders who are in treatment are especially uh, at high risk of suicidal behavior for many reasons including when they enter treatment, a lot of times their substance use is out of control and they may have a number of co-occurring life crises like marital issues, legal issues, job issues, child custody issues, you know, so they've got a lot of crap going on. And a lot of times their knee-jerk reaction has been to use again in order to just, you know, make it go away. But when they enter treatment, they're not using, they're having to recognize it, they're having to deal with it. In residential, people are often quite sheltered from the stuff outside, from their relationships, from their jobs, from everything else, from having to worry about paying bills or the bills that are way overdue. Um, And that's another reason that going from residential to even partial hospitalization can be a big hurdle for some people because they lose that sense of sanctuary, if you will, and all of a sudden they start having to deal with life on life's terms. Many people enter treatment at peaks in depressive symptoms. Most of the time, people don't enter treatment. They wake up and they say, oh, I feel great. Let me go through detox. They wake up and they say, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. I can't do this anymore. They are, for all intents and purposes, depressed. Remember, when people detox, their detox symptoms are often the opposite of the effects of their drug of choice. So if they used stimulants, they will often have depressive symptoms. If they used um, anti-anxiety meds uh, or 
opioids, they may have more anxiety. It's, but either one, as we saw earlier, either one of those mood states increases risk of suicidal ideation. Mental health problems often co-occur among people who have been treated for substance use disorders. We want to recognize that there may be undiagnosed, untreated ADHD, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, mood disorders that need to be addressed. They may come into detox never having been diagnosed with any of those and People just always assumed that their, their mental health symptoms were a result of the drug or the substance of choice, when in actuality, it may be a whole separate issue the person has that they may have been self-medicating. And crises that are known to increase suicide risk sometimes occur during treatment, um, especially if somebody's an outpatient, the chance of relapse goes up. As I talked about earlier, treatment transitions can also... Uh, happen and increase suicide risk and unfortunately you're right claudia still to this day even though minkoff came came out 15 20 years ago i can't remember when tip 42 was published saying that co-occurring disorders are the expectation not the exception we know that people when they are in early recovery experience mood symptoms and somebody who is depressed, you know, clinically depressed or has generalized anxiety um, or is experiencing an upsurgence in their PTSD symptoms as they sober up, they're going to have a really hard time staying clean and sober if we don't also address those concurrent issues, you know. We also need to address all of those baseline biological issues to make sure that they're um, in a safe place and getting what they need for their body to recover. Mitigating factors. Well, let's just, that was a nice segue in there. Let's talk about that bottom level of Maslow's hierarchy. People need to have sufficient sleep. When people are sleep deprived, they tend to not think as clearly because that adenosine is building up in their system. They tend to be more impulsive and they tend to have more mood lability. So sleep is super important. We know that sleep deprivation is associated with alterations in levels of cortisol, serotonin, norepinephrine, all of the, the chemicals that may be associated with disorders. Um, nutrition is important because the body needs all of those building blocks to repair itself as well as to function normally. So good nutrition is going to be really important, as are sunlight and circadian rhythms. Remember that sunlight helps set our circadian rhythms, but circadian rhythms are responsible for more than sleep-wake. They're responsible for our hunger and satiation hormones. They're responsible for, you know, levels, even levels of things like dopamine and norepinephrine in our system are regulated in part by our circadian rhythms and our cortisol levels. Affective mitigating factors. Teaching emotion regulation and psychological flexibility is so important. We need to help people learn how to tolerate the distress. We know that when anxiety or depression go up, risk of suicidal ideation goes up. We know that in early recovery, when anything goes wrong, it can throw somebody into a tailspin because they are, you know, very tentatively taking their first steps into sobriety. Think about a young child when they first start to walk and, you know, at first they're holding onto the couch and then they get brave and they're letting go of the couch and they're trying to take those first steps. Well, the dog coming too close is going to make them lose their balance and fall on their behind. The same sort of thing 
in early recovery. In early recovery, people are needing to get their ground legs again, and they're needing to uh, develop skills in order to deal with life on life's terms. We need to teach those emotional regulation skills that uh, Linehan talks about. Psychological flexibility kind of combines a lot of that by saying, teach mindfulness, help people become more mindful of how they feel and what their needs are in the moment, being accepting of how they feel and what is. Instead of fighting with it, just noticing and accepting it and saying, okay, this is the moment. Now, how can I improve the next moment? What can I do physically? What can I do affectively? What can I do cognitively? What can I do interpersonally or environmentally to improve that next moment so I don't have to continue to feel this way cognitively and that um, psychological flexibility comes out of um, acceptance and commitment therapy so dbt and act huge wonderful tools that can be very helpful to people in uh, in early recovery it doesn't they don't solve everything you know obviously you know if people have to process trauma that's going to be a whole other issue but the anxiety or the depression that may come up when they start to start to deal with that trauma they can work with those tools the dbt and the act tools in order to mitigate those emotional reactions so they don't stay stuck in depression or anxiety all day long cognitively hope we want to inspire hope most people who have suicidal ideation are also ambivalent there is a part of them that really wants to live and helping them find the hope that can be that beacon of light at the end of a very very long dark tunnel can be the first step now in 1977-78 Kobasa proposed a theory called hardiness so you can go back and into your old um, psych 101 textbooks and look this up but basically hardiness is comprised of three c's commitment control and challenge and Kobasa said that people who were hardy tended to uh, respond to distress in healthier ways um, commitment is helping people recognize all of the things in their life that are important to them and that they're committed to and looking at how their choices and you know their their actions impact all of those things you know if you're committed to your children if you're committed to your dog if you're committed to you know whatever you're committed to how is your this choice going to impact those things is it going to hurt them or or help them um but recognizing that a lot of times when problems occur it is in one area after heart surgery for example uh they did a lot of studies with hardiness and heart surgery and people who were hardier who recognized that okay maybe i can't run marathons anymore and i'm gonna have to alter my lifestyle a little bit so that's that's the part that sucks however there are all these other things in my life that i'm still grateful for and i'm still committed to so that was one control empowerment is the second one you know once they recognize all of those things that they're committed to then recognizing what about this situation and the rest of their life what parts of that do they have control over because a lot of times when people are in crisis they feel completely hopeless and helpless and disempowered and they're really using those cognitive distortions the all-or-none thinking so we want to help people start ferreting out you know what parts of this can you control and challenge when people see 
problems like having to have open heart surgery or recovering from depression or alcohol use disorder, when people experience um, issues and they view them as challenges, they tend to respond a lot better. Challenge, seeing something as a challenge um, brings up some of those positive chemicals and it actually causes more dopamine to be secreted because dopamine is the, I got this, I'm going to get this sort of chemical. Uh, so challenge is really important, helping people see it as an, an opportunity. That's how I looked at my GRE. That's how I looked at childbirth. You know, things that were somewhat out of my control, I used to look at as a challenge to see, okay, how can I, you know, conquer this? Environmentally, we want to help people make sure that they're safe, eliminate firearms or have them locked up, um, eliminate uh, drugs that they could easily overdose on. We don't want to have tons of opioids or benzodiazepines in the house, if possible. Um, and if they are, make sure that they're locked up. But also just making sure that they're in an environment that is emotionally and physically safe so they can relax. That's important. Um, if they are recovering from substance use, uh, a substance use disorder, making sure that they're substances are not in the house not just their substance of choice but everything so you know if they have alcohol use disorder obviously we don't want to have alcohol in the house or you know anywhere that they spend a lot of time but we also don't want marijuana in the house or cocaine or you know kratom or anything else positive triggers that's the other thing that's a mitigating factor putting positive triggers around. And this used to be super helpful for my clients in residential because, you know, residential was kind of cramped. Um, but when they were able to go back to their bunks and they were able to see the collages, each person had a collage uh, cork board at, um, above their headboard that had the pictures of and things that were meaningful to them, whether it was their, their dog, their kids, their house, their job, um, a concert that they were going to go to when they got out of treatment. Anything that they could look forward to that brought them a little bit of joy. That's helpful. Having things in your environment that bring you joy, encourage your body to secrete GABA and serotonin. And relationally, we want to make sure that people have social support and effective interpersonal skills, especially boundaries and communication. Um, when people have solid-ish boundaries, I don't think any of us have perfect boundaries 100% of the time, but it is much more helpful. In substance use uh, recovery, remembering that they've burned a lot of bridges and a lot of people may be angry at them, a lot of people may have hurt them, um, or they may have hurt a lot of people. Recognizing and set it, being able to set boundaries so they don't take on and, and just feel constantly everybody's anger and feel oppressed by all the negativity is really important. Um, allowing themselves to actually feel happy sometimes and being able to communicate, recognize their own needs and communicate their needs to other people in an assertive manner is super important. These are all helpful mitigating factors that as clinicians, we can teach. We can educate people about the importance of these things. Positive attitudes and behaviors. We want to pro provide an array of biopsychosocial services. We want to make sure that when people discharge from treatment or if they're an outpatient, um, that 
you know, when they're not with us, they are in a safe environment. They have medical care. They have access to food. They have ideally a job or some somewhere that they can spend time, even if it's just volunteer hours, uh, they can spend time in a pro-social environment. We want to screen and communicate people's status and intervention. If you're working in IOP, PHP, residential, making sure that you have a logbook. That's how we always did it. There may be other ways to do it. Um, and we would screen people every shift and note how they were doing. Uh, so the next shift when they took over, they knew who was, you know, having a great day and who was having an off day. And if there was somebody who had suicidal ideation, um, we had a specific section in that book and that person had to check in three times a day with uh, the team in and rate their level of depression. All expressions of suicidality indicate significant distress and increased vulnerability. Don't overlook them we do want to recognize it early the earlier we can catch it just like with the cold or with the flu the earlier we can catch it the easier it will be theoretically to mitigate it be aware of indirect signs including those warning signs unique to the client some people will get agitated when they start to become feeling helpless and hopeless they may, may become more irritable and push people away and just and withdraw at the same time some people start giving away things or they change their verbiage and they refuse to talk about future plans there they won't talk about what they're going to do next or even tomorrow if they if they aren't talking about the future, if they're not willing to talk about what's coming up this weekend, that's a huge warning sign that you want to pay attention to. Explore past suicide attempts and ideation is not going to cause them to become suicidal. They've already had those thoughts, but this is allowing them to get it out and talk about it so it's not this shameful thing. Explore these things with them to identify what has made those that ideation worse and what makes it better for them and each person will be different uh some people uh their dog you know animals are huge for some people their pets are huge or talking to their kids um, whatever it is that helps get them regrounded and get them out of that place where they're feeling like they're spinning out of control identify i try to identify at least three things that are helpful as mitigating factors when the person starts to feel out of control um, make sure all clients have the number of a suicide hotline and or a procedure in residential for addressing suicidal or self-injurious thoughts obviously when they're in residential they're not going to call the suicide hotline you want to make sure that everybody knows who they're supposed to contact if they start feeling like they're becoming suicidal warning signs is path warm i did not come up with this although i love it you know i love acronyms we want to remember to look for ideation be aware that substance abuse is a big trigger um, when people are coming down from stimulants they can get really depressed and that can trigger ideation when they're coming down from um, depressants they can uh, get really anxious that can trigger you know a sense of being overwhelmed and out of control uh, purposelessness anger trapped and hopelessness you know these are all sort of states of being that can trigger uh, suicidal ideation and then withdrawing anxiety recklessness and mood changes and mood changes some people as i said get agitated 
other people get withdrawn. A lot of people um, that, you know, I've worked with survivors of suicide and a lot of people report that their loved one actually became very calm right before they attempted suicide or committed suicide. Um, and that's also a warning sign. You don't want to assume that, okay, the person's calm, everything's hunky-dory now. That could be that they've made up their mind and they are feeling at peace with their decision. So don't assume that a, a sudden onset of calm is necessarily a good thing, just like we as, don't assume that a sudden onset of agitation is a good thing. The gate procedures. We want to gather information, early identification of warning signs, and asking follow-up questions. Those follow-up questions should focus on the nature, frequency, intensity, duration, and triggers of suicidal thoughts. So when you start having those thoughts, how often do you have them? Is it once a day, once a week, once an hour. How intense are they? You know, is it just a fleeting thought or is it oppressive and you can't think about anything else? How long does it last? You know, again, a fleeting thought here and gone the next minute or does it last for hours? You sit, you know, pondering this suicide for, for a long period of time. And what triggers those things and in what context? Sometimes there will be different triggers in different contexts. Remember, smells are some of the greatest triggers of memories. If you're working with somebody with a trauma history, smells can be triggers. Even if the patient doesn't report a plan, ask whether there are certain conditions under which they would consider suicide. I don't think I ever did that when I was working in residential, but I think it makes a whole lot of sense. That way I have an idea, you know, if something should happen over the next 30, 60, 90 days while you're in treatment, you know, I know that you've already identified this as being a big issue. For a lot of the people that I worked with, uh, one of their big issues would be if they had their parental rights terminated. That would be huge. Um, so gather information about what's going on, what could trigger uh, suicidal ideation in this person. If they are having ideation, access supervision. And even if they aren't, if they have a history of suicidal ideation, it's always good to access supervision so you can make sure that your prevention plans, you know, are all lined up. I'm big on supervision. And it can be with a colleague if you're not, you know, an intern anymore. Uh, but it's always good to have another person collaborate, document that supervision in or collaboration in the record. It'll go a long way. You know, God forbid something horrible should happen. Um, it does go a long way to proving that you did what any reasonable person would have done in your shoes. Take responsible action and then extend the action. Just because somebody has passed the acute ideation phase, you know, that ideation is faded, they're still very vulnerable. Like after we get sick, you know, we get, we recover, we get healthy, we're feeling better. But think if last time you had the flu, last time I had the flu, it was probably three weeks before I had my energy back and I was able to deal with life in quite the same way. People are the same way with emotions. When they've had this huge influx of um, despair, it's exhausting and it can be very draining on the person, which means it's harder for them to deal with stress when it comes their way in the, in the aftermath. So don't just look at the acute period of, okay, you know, Jane was experiencing ideation on Tuesday. Friday, she reports that she's feeling a lot better. 
and then Monday you don't speak of it ever again. No, you want to make sure that you've got a um, continuation plan that you're checking in with Jane uh, at least for a month or six weeks to make sure that things are going well and starting to feel like she's regrounded. In inpatient settings, there are not specific risk factors unique to the inpatient setting, but it's important, hence the reason I bolded it. Fewer than half of the patients who die by suicide in the hospital or in inpatient were admitted with suicidal ideation. So let that sink in for a second. The majority of people, said another way, the majority of people who die by suicide while they're in inpatient did not have ideation when they were admitted. So something triggered them while they were in treatment, something that, that is shocking to a lot of people. But we do want to be aware of this. Part of the reason, I think, is what I stated before. When they're not able to numb it out, when they're not able to access their addiction um, in order to take the edge off those overwhelming emotions, they start feeling very powerless and helpless. Extreme agitation or anxiety or a rapidly fluctuating course is common before suicide, but many people report a state of extreme calm immediately preceding an attempt. Each suicidal crisis must be treated as a new one with each admission and assessed accordingly. No two crises, no two suicidal episodes are going to be exactly the same. So we want to look at them and say, okay, what's the same, but also what's different so we can better create a suicide prevention plan with this person. On that note, and I think I'm going to get to it later, suicide prevention contracts or behavioral contracts, safety contracts, whatever you call them in your place, um, they have been shown to be not worth the paper that they're written on and oftentimes dangerous because it lulls people into a false sense, clinicians, into a false sense of security. People are going to sign whatever. Um, and then when they start feeling overwhelmed, they're not going to think, oh, well, I signed that piece of paper, so I best not do that. You know, they are looking to make the agony stop. And what they signed at 3 o'clock in the afternoon probably ain't going to stop them. So don't suicide prevention plans, giving people resources to use um, and identifying triggers and figuring out how to keep those, mitigate those triggers, those are all great things. But just having a contract that says, you know, I promise I will not harm myself, um, and if I start feeling suicidal, I will call 911 or my therapist signed by the person and the therapist. Those don't do any good. Okay. Uh, just that's the way it is. That's what the research has said. Anyhow, um, the initial evaluation in outpatient settings should be comprehensive and include a suicide assessment, including strengths, vulnerabilities, stressors, and the development of that safety plan. Because that person has at least 23 hours a day seven days a week probably, that they are not in the safety of the confines of your facility. Be aware that suicidality may wax and wane in the course of treatment. Sudden changes in clinical status may include worsening or unexpected improvements in reported symptoms, um, and that requires suicidality be reconsidered. Remember, sometimes people will go from being really depressed to almost feeling peaceful. And that can be a danger sign. If when the mood change is unexpected, and especially if it's rapid, we definitely want to examine that. Risk may also be increased by the lack of a reliable therapeutic alliance. 
patient's unwillingness to engage in therapy or adhere to their medication treatment or in a, inadequate social support. In long-term care facilities, indirect self-destructive acts are found among both men and women and are a common manifestation of suicide in institutional settings. Now, we don't have a lot of long-term mental health or substance institutionalization, but we do have a lot of people in long-term care facilities who are in recovery from substance use and or have co-occurring mental health issues. Uh, so we don't want to um, forget this population. Physical illness, functional impairment, and pain are associated with increased risk for suicide. Hopelessness and personality styles that impede adaptation to a dependent role also play a role. So if you have somebody who is extremely independent and suddenly they're in a long-term care facility, they are at high risk. My grandmother was that way. She lived on her own and, you know, fought tooth and nail about going to a long-term care facility, but her dementia had just gotten so bad um, and she didn't want to move in. She refused to move in with either one of her children. Uh, so eventually she had to go and she went through a period of pretty extreme depression. Suicide is one of the leading causes of death in correctional settings. People who die by suicide in jails tend to be young, white, single, and intoxicated. Suicide in correctional facilities generally occurs by hanging, because that's the easiest way, um, and isolation may actually increase suicide. When you think you're getting people away from, you know, bullies or something, it actually may be increasing their risk of suicide. Suicidal behaviors often increase immediately on entry into the facility. So the people who are, you know, in booking need to be aware. After new legal complications with an inmate's case, such as denial of parole or sentencing. After inmates receive bad news about loved ones, maybe they get served divorce papers or, you know, child custody papers or a death, or after they've been sexually assaulted or experienced another trauma, which could even include the death of or loss of one of their, um, one of the other people that's in the correctional facility. Helpful tips. People who are suicidal are often ambivalent. Remember that crisis is a risk, you know, it's a danger time, but it's also an opportunity because the person can't stay in that limbo position of crisis forever. They've got to make a choice about what they're going to do. Suicide risk assessment and regular screening is vital, not just at admission, but periodically. Uh, one of the things that I used to do with my IOP groups, when they would come in for group, I had a check-in sheet that they would fill out. They would identify, you know, what the best thing that happened to them since the last group, the worst thing that happened to them since the last group, if any. Um, and then they would do a quick little check off about their mood. And, you know, it took them all of you know, two or three minutes to do, but it, I was able to collect that from each person uh, each time, each day that they came. So I had an ongoing record, so to speak, of uh, what was going on sort of in their life and if they were having any suicidal thoughts. Prevention must be ongoing. We need to check in with people. Sometimes they get tired. They start to slack off on, you know, doing things that are good for them and helpful for their recovery. It's important that as clinicians, we encourage them and help them remember how important simple things like sleep and exercise and sunlight and circadian rhythms, um, as well as mindfulness, for example, are in 
preventing small problems from becoming bigger problems. Suicide contracts are not recommended. And remember that many clients will be at risk of suicide even after getting clean. They often, it takes people a while to really develop these new coping skills and interpersonal skills and new relationships in recovery. So especially that first two years is a potential high risk. Suicidality is not uncommon. It's important to regularly screen all clients for suicidality through check-in sheets, monitoring logs. Remember, suicidality is an opportunity for change. A variety of different issues can contribute to suicidality, so we don't want to assume that it's just one thing. Early recovery, and when I say early recovery, I'm generally referring to that first three to six months at the very least, maybe the first year. Early recovery is a period of extreme vulnerability for many people, and treatment plans should always contain a suicide prevention plan that doesn't substitute for active monitoring. Are there any questions? And Anne brings up a good point about acceptance and commitment therapy. Um, in acceptance and commitment therapy, people are taught to accept what is. Instead of telling people what's wrong with them, accept them and love themselves and the moment, accept the moment as it is. It's not good. It's not bad. It just, it is. And you can choose to improve upon it if you want. But nothing, you know, not seeing themselves as broken or faulty, just seeing themselves as how they are in the moment. Alrighty, everybody, have a great day. And on Thursday, we are talking about opioid prevention, opioid abuse prevention strategy. There are some neat new things. A lot of it's going to be review. And quite honestly, you know, I find that over the years, it seems like the politicians kind of guide this. We jump on the bandwagon and they it seems like they treat each drug as if it's some new weird thing and we've got to prevent it a different way. In large part, addiction is addiction. And so we need to prevent addiction. And a lot of what we're going to talk about is that. But we will talk specifically about the reasons people abuse opioids and uh, interventions that can help. If this podcast helps you help your clients or yourself, please support us by purchasing your CEUs at allceus.com or getting your agency to sponsor an episode. A direct link to the on-demand CEUs for this podcast is at allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. That's allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. To sponsor an episode of Counselor Toolbox and reach over 50,000 clinicians per week, go to allceus.com slash sponsor. Thank you.